0: Welcome to episode two of season two of the Weiser podcast. Today we're hearing from the multi-talented, self-described trauma mama, Dr. Randy Smith. She'll talk about the intersection of public health and trauma surgery, about the importance of trauma-informed care and the gravity of working in inner-city Atlanta, and also about life as a brand new mom. She was gracious enough to sit down for this interview while she was actually on maternity leave just weeks after having her first baby. She actually hosted us at her home, so excuse the baby noises in the background.
1: Without further ado, here's episode two with Dr. Randy Smith. Welcome back to the Wiser Podcast. I'm Sarah Hojati, a fourth-year Emory medical student, and I'm here with Stephanie Busby, a fellow in the Emory Trauma Surgery Fellowship Program. In this episode of the Wiser Podcast, we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Randy Smith, who is a current assistant professor of surgery, trauma, and surgical critical care at Emory University School of Medicine and an assistant professor of public health at Emory University Rollins School of Public Health.
2: (laughs) Dr. Smith has been with Emory University since 2017. Prior to this, she served as an instructor of surgery and fellow in the division of critical care at the university of pennsylvania her clinical interests lie in injury and violence prevention and she is currently heading a hospital-based intervention program for underserved populations dr smith's primary research interests include physical and psychological aspects of impairment and recover- recovery following occurrences of traumatic injury and her work focuses on creating a better understanding of the incidence prevalence and impact of retained bullets she's a leader in her clinical field with several editorial appointments on prominent journals and textbooks as well as multiple national and international presentations.
1: Hi, ladies. Hi, thanks for being with us. Of course. So let's get started with the classic question, why did you
0: choose surgery? Well, you know, honestly, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I started medical school in terms of like what discipline. And I just wanted to like enjoy every aspect of um, the different rotations that I was on. I was a little bit non-traditional in that I did my master's in public health in between my second and third year of medical school. And so I came back to my clinical years with a different perspective of like treating the individual in front of me, but also being very interested in like community um, and public health. And um, so I just kind of treated every single rotation as if I were like going to be doing that for the rest of my life. And when I got to surgery, I loved everything about it. And I could clearly see like this very nice um, connection between like surgery and public health. And so that's kind of, you know, how I've built my career is like this intersection between a clinical career and surgery and public health. And that's with injury and violence prevention.
1: What were some challenges that you faced as a resident and as a female resident? And do you see your mentees facing similar or different challenges? Absolutely, Um,
0: you know, I would say that surgery is still a white male field. I'm a black woman, and I feel like there were challenges as an African American in the field, challenges as um, a woman in the field that you have to overcome. And when I say that, the challenges are not always, you know, blatant. You know, just like having lack of mentorship or people that look like me that I could go to for advice. Um, Or that we're dealing with the same things. I feel like those are some of the challenges that I had to face Some of the things that I did to overcome the challenges were seeking out mentorship and sponsorship, and I think those two things are different Um, I became very heavily involved in um, as a society of black academic surgeons um, Where I had a lot of sponsors that I would call on to help me along the way I sought out mentorship from like within my institution from some of the females not only in the department of surgery but female leaders in other departments that had kind of climbed the ranks of academia and um and i tried to be the best example for the people who are coming up behind me um there w- were not very many women um in my residency when i first started then we had a class like a couple years behind me that were all women, so I could clearly see that there were changes that were happening. Um, and I think that you know, podcasts like this one and and just different activities that you can do to kind of engage the women and, and promote diversity and inclusion. And it, inclusion doesn't have to be race; it can be anything like gender, sexual orientation, religion, the, the list goes on and on. But it's if you can promote inclusion, I think that that's how you overcome some of these challenges that I think I faced.
2: Uh, who were some of your mentors and what were some of the words of wisdom they imparted on you and how did they affect your uh, path in surgery?
0: So I would say I had some amazing mentors, male and female. Um, one that comes to mind um, is my Favorite mentor Rochelle Dicker. Um, she is now at UCLA, but she was at UCSF um, during my time as a medical student and a resident, and I did research with her. And she's a person that shares the same passions for violence prevention. And you know, I think now there are more and more surgeons at the table that um, talk about violence prevention and talk about some of the public health and policy issues that are surrounding gun violence, but mean, a decade ago that wasn't necessarily the case and she was one of the people that just told me keep moving forward like you what you're doing and, and what you're um, advocating for is very important um, and i i just needed someone at that time to just tell me it was okay to be different and kind of be a trailblazer and and she herself was a trailblazer and i could see where her career had taken off from doing the same things and i think that you know, just sometimes just near, need to hear somebody tell you that you can do it, you know? Like, keep going, you can do it. And that's what she was for me.
1: I'd like to talk about some of the initiatives that you're a part of. Um, and before I do that, I just want to mention a few statistics. So, of all the violence related injuries seen at Grady between 2011 and 2013, the overwhelming majority were African American, 80%, um, 89% male, and um, between ages 20 and 40 gunshot wounds accounted for over half of these violence-related injuries. So it can be said that there's an epidemic of gun violence within the demographic of young African-American males Absolutely. in Atlanta.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: what do you think is your role as a trauma surgeon in all of this?
0: You know, I, I really do feel like trauma surgeons are at the front line. You know, we're not necessarily the ones picking up people out in the streets like the medics but we're at the front lines when they get to the hospital and I definitely feel like we need to be at the table when it comes to policy and decision making at the local level and at the state level and definitely at the national level. Um, I'm very involved in research related to gun violence and violence prevention. But it's really hard to do. There's not a lot of funding for it. And um, and there are a lot of stipulations uh, surrounding the type of research that can be done. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we can kind of swing the pendulum so that we're preventing more violence and you know, like really tearing down some of these um, disparities that exist in, in trauma um, is to continue to do research and continue to just say that this is a public health issue, that we all are everyone's affected.
2: Do you have any uh, specific stories that come to mind as related to gun violence, or have you seen any of those impacts in the community uh, or a story that's been personally um, resonant with you?
0: Yeah, you know, so like you said, I started in 2017, July. I haven't even been at Grady for two years yet. And I've already taken care of a couple of people who have been re-injured Another word that we use is a recidivist, like they've been re-injured with some type of traumatic injury. And one guy that I can think of that I operated on, and he looked like he was going to die and somehow survived and made it out of the hospital. He came back, and he had been at another hospital where he was shot a second and a third time and was having a complication from that third gunshot wound. And I just, I don't know, it just makes me feel like we still have a lot of work to do Um, And it's kind of when I hear these stories and I see these people that I'm taking care of after multiple traumatic injuries. It's kind of like the drive that keeps me going. I'm like, we have a lot of work to do, and I want to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. In the same breath, I can think of people who, like you know, by their injuries when they came in, I thought they were not going to survive, and you know, take them up to the operating room. You operate on them. You, you know, can't sleep because of like how worried you are about them. You're in the ICU taking care of them and then they somehow survive. And it makes you feel good to know that you've, you know, made a difference in that person's life. But our our job is really hard. You know, it really is a, a hard job physically and emotionally. Um, I'm somebody who gets attached to my patients I, I try to treat everyone as if they're a family member and so you know sometimes you you kind of harbor that and you take it home with you um, but I can think I literally can think of so many stories when you say that some good some bad um, but I think all of it it's kind of like what helps shape me as a as a trauma surgeon and kind of pushes me to keep doing what I do
2: one of the observations people have made about trauma is that you have people come in um, oftentimes with gunshot wounds, stab wound, uh, injuries that have been a result of violence, and that you save the, the patient's life, but that they themselves could also be involved in violence. And I think a lot of it can get very oversimplified when it's a very complex problem. So what are some of the ways and interventions we can do in the hospitals to kind of try and address this complex you know, interplay between uh, kind of culture and, and socioeconomics and, and and some of those limitations
0: yeah you know it's interesting that you bring that up because there is definitely a, a, a lot of literature that talks about the victim perpetrator overlap when people come into the hospital and they're injured they are my patient and I don't want to know the circumstances all the time of what happened to them um, at that moment I'm taking care of their physical injuries. Um, but what I don't want to do is put a Band-Aid on their injuries and send them back out into the same environment that led to their injury in the first place. And so I think that what we, what you're asking and what I think we need to kind of like develop at Grady is something called trauma-informed care. And that idea is that people come in, they're injured, they had a traumatic injury, and that trauma affects their life, it affects their recovery, it affects all the people that are involved in their care, the institution. And so we have to figure out a way that we are um, not re-victimizing our patients. They're, we're providing them with the best care from the time that they hit the door to the time that they're no longer feeling any ailments from it, which is like the whole recovery phase. And, um, and we just need to be cognizant of that. We need to speak the right language, too. We have to be very mindful of our own bias. Um, you know, a lot of times people say things like, oh yeah, they're just minding their own business and they say it kind of like in a mm. you know judgmental way. And that's hurtful because sometimes people are just minding their own business and they get injured. And if they're not, that's still not our place to judge them. And then of course, you know, we have now PIVOT, which is our hospital-based violence intervention program. I love the name, by the way. PIVOT is just <laughs> so great, right? It's the program to interrupt violence through outreach and treatment. And it was started by Diane Payne and I jumped on board to help out um, just with my background, I've, I've done. Um, I've been involved in a lot of hospital-based violence intervention programs across the country, and Pivot is just starting, and it started last June, and we have an amazing social worker, an amazing hospital team, and I think that programs like Pivot are what's helpful. It's like intensive case management, like A.R.E.K., our social worker, goes to them at the bedside and tries to figure out what circumstances led to their injury, and then tries to prevent them from being re-injured and being a recidivist. And I mean, we got to have more programs like that. I think a program like Pivot should be at every single level one trauma center across the country because they're so necessary and they've been proven to be effective, like effective in preventing re-injury and also cost effective, like for society. So,
2: you know, speaking to that, um, I had a patient when I was a resident who came back to clinic, multiple gunshot wounds, X-lap, multiple repairs. And when I saw him, I said, you know what? You're doing great. The wound's healing well. You're tolerating a diet. Everything seems great.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he was there with his mom, and they were both quiet. And and so I, I asked, well, wh- well, what's wrong? You know, it, everything seems great. And she said, you don't understand. He This happened near our home. He can't go in that neighborhood because he is so afraid. We've spent all of our savings at a hotel at, outside of town because that's the only place he'll go. And that was kind of one of the moments for me where I realized the – Kind of the the depth of the problem and and the level of understanding that we had mm-hmm. um, that there was there were so many more layers than just right. the operation or the medical care. Um, so I think that these uh, interventions in the future are going to be very important. And I'm not sure how we we get there to that level of understanding and 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 caring for the patient to to truly address the needs that this population has.
0: Yeah, I think it's education. I mean, that was the. A- educational moment for you right and it was great that your patient and your patient's mom disclose that information but there are tons of times when people come in and they don't say anything right. as the provider it's our job to ask right and and the only way that we learn more information is by being educated knowing that it's okay to ask it's okay to ask you know how are you feeling are you having nightmares are you nervous about being in the same environment all those questions matter. I mean, the psychological ramifications of trauma are just like crazy. And, um, you know, and it's it's sad because there are not a lot of resources for families. We now have victims of crime as a, um, resources that we allocate to people who have been injured, but there are a lot of stipulations surrounding that. Um, but we have to ask the questions as hard as they may be. And then we have to work towards finding solutions. Like that's our job.
2: And I think something that you point out that I've learned from you is that we don't often ask men when they come in, "Do you have a safe place to go? What has mm-hmm. happened?" We assume, kind of, I guess, reverse gender bias that they, yeah. that they're okay, um, and then I think that there is um, a push for them to be okay and to pretend that everything's okay.
0: Right. And sometimes it just takes getting everybody out of the room, right. You remember when we were in medical school, you know, they tell you to get everybody out of the room before you ask any, like, you know, personal questions or any questions that might be sensitive. And sometimes that's all it takes is just saying, like, hey, how are you doing? But I I ask specific questions. I say, like, are you having nightmares? Because that's pretty common. And if you make it so that it's not something that's out of the ordinary, like, they'll tell you, most people will be honest and they'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm having nightmares or, Yeah, I keep reliving, um, you know, the situation or what happened. And then we need to have the resources to get them into like therapy. I mean, PTSD and depression and anxiety are real. And so we, I mean, we're trauma surgeons, but we kind of have to have the psychological issues or thoughts in, in our minds as well. Thinking about like how our patients are affected.
1: So we were looking at some of your publications and we saw that you looked into the impact of retained bullets. Yes. Can you tell us about what you found?
0: Yeah, so in one of my um, in my involvement in one of the violence prevention programs in California, um, you know, I would not wear scrubs when I would meet the clients and once someone found out that I was a, I was a doctor they would say to me, oh, my gosh, can you take out my bullet? And we would talk about it, and I would say, oh, where's your bullet? And like, oh, in my arm, oh, in my leg, or someplace I was, like, palpable. Um, and I would ask why the bullet was not taken out, and they would say that they were told that, you know, bullets don't need to be taken out. But it kept happening so much that when I got to my fellowship at um, the University of Pennsylvania, I started advocating for taking bullets out. And at Penn, they're very um, – Academic, and so <laughs> someone said to me, "Oh, has that been studied?" And I was like, "No, um, not to my knowledge." So I did lit search, and it hadn't been studied. Um, and so, what we did was in, at Penn, we. Um, already had a study going on where we were looking at how African-American males recover from injury. And so we just did like a um, subgroup analysis where we looked at the folks who had been shot and those who had retained bullets versus those who did not. Everybody had already received um, a screening tool for PTSD and depression. And we found out that the people who had retained bullets had higher depressive screens. And we're like, oh my goodness, that's so crazy. I thought it was going to be PTSD, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because I, I think of, the constant reminder that the bullet may present for people is like a constant reminder of the trauma that they may have had. Um, But again, this is a subgroup analysis. We weren't like powering a study like to look at this. We just kind of jumped on someone else's study. So since I've been at Grady, we've been actually doing a qualitative study where we're interviewing people who have been injured by gunshot who have a retained bullet. And we're just like learning from them, like from their perspective, what is the impact of retained bullets? And some of the things that they say is, like phenomenal. I thought it was all going to be negative. Like, Oh my God, I think about like my injury every day. And some people have turned it around and had a positive spin on it. Like it reminds me of how far I've come and how hopeless I was and how hopeful I am now. And like, you know, some of the things that they say, I mean, that's the best thing about qualitative research, right? You just don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of let the, um, the patient and their, like, experience kind of guide your your research, and we're learning so much from them. But yes, the study before did say that retained bullets was associated with higher depressive screens, and so for that reason, I do give patients that have superficial retained bullets um, an option. I always ask them if they would like for me to remove the bullet, and I've been trying to push the envelope with, like, the people who I work with, uh, the fellows and my other <laughs> colleagues to just kind of ask the question, because we don't know a lot about retained bullets. And now uh, ammunition is changing. There could be lead toxicity and some other like negative consequences that we just don't know about. And so I've been trying to take them out.
1: So what sorts of things do you do when you come home while you're at work, just <laughs> when you're by yourself? You kind of, <laughs> um, you know, balance the emotions. decompress. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, our job is kind of heavy sometimes. Um, I like to cook. I like to eat. I like to work out. <laughs> I like to be normal. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to my friends who are like not in trauma. Um, and you know, my husband doesn't want to hear anything about work when I get home and you know, like, he, he doesn't want to see pictures, nothing like he just like, Oh, okay. How was your day? Great. And then we move on we talk about something else. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I rely a lot on um, family and friends to kind of get me through like the, the tough days and we have long days too, but those are the days that I, um, eat donuts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so speaking of family, yes. um, congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Um, what was that like kind of being a <sighs> surgeon and being pregnant and-
0: So I used to walk around the hospital calling myself a trauma mama, but I wasn't really a mama. Um, I would say that having a baby is probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, it's just so rewarding. And there's like, first of all, I grew a human inside of me, right? Like that's pretty badass, I think. While taking trauma call. While taking trauma call and loss of it (laughs) and operating all day and with a big old belly. And, you know... um, now there's like this this little guy who looks up at me and is like feed me and then, I mean it's it's on me to feed him and I just love it. Um, I love everything about being a, a wife. I love everything about being a mama, um, and it's like it brings such a smile to my face. And everyone asks me like, oh, are you tired? I'm actually more energized than when I was taking trauma call that's the truth
2: and, and also can you tell everyone how he
0: proposed because I oh think my that's god a are you wonderful story that? it's
2: wonderful
0: oh my gosh lord jesus um and, and set yeah. the stage <laughs> okay so I'll, I'll set the stage i actually had just gotten out of the operating room with a necrotizing soft tissue infection case which are painful they're smelly the patients are sick as snot um, and this patient was, like, not doing well. I was taking her back and forth to the operating room. And then I get a call from my colleague, Dr. Kenesha Williams, and she's like, hey, I'm down in Trauma Bay 1 in the um, Marcus Trauma Center. Uh, can you come help me with a patient? And, of course, you guys, you know, are just learning me. I'm the ultimate team player. So if someone asks me, like, to help out, I'm going to be there. Because when I ask for help, I, wish, I want people to be there for me, too, right? So... At Grady, the ICU is on the seventh floor and it's about a city block away from the trauma center. I literally run down all the stairs, get to the ground floor, run a city block to the trauma bay. And as I'm like walking into like the ER area, I realize like I'm huffing and puffing. So I stopped and started walking, but walking fast and like, you know, panting. And then I get to the trauma bay she tells me she's in trauma bay one which is like our highest acuity trauma area and I look I don't see a patient I don't even see a gurney and I'm so confused and I see her at one end of the room and she's looking like she has this weird smirk (laughs) on her face and I think she has something in her hand but I don't know what it is and it's actually later I learned her telephone because she was recording me (laughs) and I'm like so confused and I walk in and then out of the corner of my eye, I see my now husband, and he gets down on that dirty trauma <laughs> floor. I know, right? Gross. And But I don't even know what he says. I think, I don't know what he said. I'm assuming that he said, will you marry me? But I was just like <laughs> in shock, and I just wasn't expecting it at all. And then I couldn't even believe that my colleague was in on it and didn't tell me. Like, what? So... I run out of the room. All of this is on video too. Okay. Like I literally run out of the room and then I come back and I was like, uh, I didn't say anything. Yes, of course, whatever, you know? Um, and there you have it. Oh no, that's not the end of the story. The other part of the story is that one of my fellows sees me running. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, oh my God, Dr. Smith is running to the trauma bay. It must be something bad. Let me go help. So you see him on the video, like come into the trauma (laughs) bay, like poking his head in and he's like oh uh uh, sorry you know (laughs) it's totally awkward and weird uh yeah so yep Marcus Trauma Center Trauma Bay 1 that's where my husband proposed to me I guess he was trying to do it like earlier in the week but I just kept getting stuck at the hospital and so he just brought the proposal to me.
1: I saw that you've done some work with the USA track and field team. I have. um, As a team doctor, Mm -hmm. you actually traveled with them to Poland, Russia, Mexico, Austria. Mm -hmm. What made you do?
0: Um, So yes, I ran track. Um, I started running track at age 11 and um, ended up getting a scholarship to Washington State University. At that time, it was Pac-10. Now it's Pac-12. So I've been running track like forever. Um, And... One of the, you know, actually one of my biggest successes as an athlete was making it to the world team um, where I got to compete. It was actually my first time ever traveling outside of the country was competing for the USA track and field. Um, and I was in, in Chile, in Santiago, Chile. Um, and um, and then the next year I was like on the Pan American team, which was actually hosted by the USA. So ugh, not that fun. But I always wanted to like give back. Um and you know, at at one point I had to decide like, okay, do I pursue like a semi-professional professional career in track? I was not that great, you know, where I wasn't like, you know, Allison Felix or anything. Um, or do I go into medicine? And so when I went into medicine I still um kept in contact with um people from USA track and field. And they asked me if I would go and be the team doctor. I didn't know what that meant. I'm not sports medicine. Um, But a lot of the ailments that they have are like, you know, basic things like insomnia when they change different time zones, allergies, um, you know, diarrheal illnesses. In Mexico, I dealt with the whole team that was sick. It was my first time being the team doctor. And I was like, (laughs) I've I've been known to have a black cloud. And I was like, definitely one of those times. Um, but it was my way to give back to track and field. I go, um, it's voluntary. Um, I, you know, they give you a very, very tiny stipend, but you know, I have to use vacation time to go. Um, but it was a way for me to just kind of keep in contact with the sport and, and give back. And then also like people that were, um, athletes would come up to me and say, I didn't even know as an athlete that I can become a doctor. And they would think that, you know, they were limited to athletic training or, you know, physical therapy or something like that, not knocking any of those fields. But I was also just another avenue. It was a way for me to just tell them that you can be anything you want to be. And so I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of different countries. Um, I haven't been like in the last the last time I went was when I was a fellow Um, But I would love to keep doing that. It's something that is really near and dear to my heart.
2: I think no interview would be complete without bringing up, and it's particularly appropriate with you at the microphone, your love of Beyonce.
0: Okay, so yes, it's true. (laughs) In the operating room, whenever they say, Dr. Smith, what would you like to hear? I'm either going to choose Beyonce or Bruno Mars, and I would say Beyonce 85% of the time and Bruno Mars 15% of the time. And I was like so excited. Well, first of all, you know, I would never go to Coachella because I don't believe in like porta potties. But Beychella, I mean, I just like love watching like everything about Beyonce online. She's such an inspiration. She has like kids. She like is still like a badass mama. I just love that. And I mean, her music is also very great. And I love all of Beyonce, even like Destiny's Child Beyonce. So I just put it on the Beyonce station, and I just go to town. I sing. I don't sound good, but you know, I'd like to have um, some music playing in the operating room.
1: Yeah. Thanks for speaking with us. I think we both learned a lot. I know I did about you. And oh, it was, great! You know, definitely took a lot from this conversation.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I just I love being a trauma surgeon. I love being like a daughter, friend, wife, and but my favorite thing is being a mama.
2: And congratulations on baby Bryce because Thank he is you. so adorable. Thank you
0: so much. <laughs> that makes me so happy. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yay. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support and we hope to hear from you soon.